Hey everybody, it's us and we're here to talk to you about, get this, our book. We have a Stuff You Should Know book coming out this November and you're going to love it and you can pre-order it now. That's right. It's called Stuff You Should Know, colon, <laughs> an incomplete compendium of mostly interesting things. And it's been a lot of fun to work on and we're really... I mean, genuinely excited about how this thing has come together. Yep. It's 26 chunky, hairy chapters that are just going to knock your socks clean off. And yes, Chuck, we are indeed proud of this book. It is truly, indubitably the first Stuff You Should Know book. And it's coming out this November, and you can order it now, pre-order, everywhere you get books. So do that. And we thank you in advance. Welcome to Stuff You Should Know, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh. There's Chuck. Jerry's out there in the ether somewhere. Um, like that one kid being transmitted from the camera to the TV in Willy Wonka. Wow. I got that one eight kinds of wrong. Yeah. But anyway, this is stuff you should know, which is appropriate. <laughs> Did I get something eight kinds of wrong right at the beginning? Did you ever hear the story from Gene Wilder about the move at the beginning of that movie where he walks out with a cane? Uh, then, where he did the spill, the yeah, somersault? Yeah, he, he sticks the cane in the ground and does the somersault. No. He said that that was his idea. Mm-hmm. And this just shows the brilliance of Gene Wilder. And, and he said he did that because he knew from that moment on <clears throat> no one would believe anything that that character said. Oh, yes. I, I have heard that before. Great story. That is, that is brilliant. That man was a brilliant man and man. a wonderful human being. I loved him. He's got one of his last interviews on uh, Conan O'Brien was so great because Conan was just gushing. And, oh, uh, I'm sure. Gene Wilder was very, I think, kind of taken back by how much he means to people. Very um, nice. Uh, have you ever seen – oh, no, that wasn't the question I had. Did you know <laughs> – did you know that your question Con- was? Did you fart? <laughs> <laughs> did you know that Conan O'Brien and Dennis Leary are cousins? I don't think I knew that. According to Conan O'Brien, asking a question on Jeopardy, that is his cousin. Hmm. Did yeah. not know that. Uh, speaking of Jeopardy, uh, we have a colleague named uh, Ken Jennings who is on Jeopardy. <laughs> yeah, and we have another colleague. Two colleagues called Daniel and Jorge, and they have a um, a podcast called Daniel and Jorge Explain the Universe. It's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. But they also, Chuck, I just saw, have a PBS Kids animated program coming out September 7th called Eleanor Wonders Why. Oh, cool. And it looks adorable. Wow. That sounds like uh, right up my daughter's alley. Yeah. So check it out, everybody. PBS Kids, September 7th, Eleanor Wonders Why, and congrats, Daniel and Jorge. Do you have any famous cousins? Famous or infamous? <laughs> I think we are the famous cousins. That's uh, that's how sad our families are. <laughs> yeah. Feels pretty great, though. I keep being like, hey, let's have another family reunion this month. <laughs> <laughs> uh, speaking of infamous cousins, Chuck, how about those Anglin brothers, huh? <laughs> yeah, man. This is... Uh... I kind of thought I kind of thought we did this. I know we did. We do one on Alcatraz, and maybe it just briefly touched on it. Absolutely, because this is uh, this movie, the nineteen what was it seventy nine, Escape from Alcatraz movie with Clint Eastwood, mm-hmm. was one of my favorite movies as a kid. It's a good movie. I went. I watched it just the other night. 
as part of this. Yeah. It, it was an HBO special, so I must have been – I didn't see it in, when I was eight. I probably was like 10 or 11, mm-hmm. and it was one of those movies I probably watched – over a dozen times when I was 12, 12 years right. old. Followed by Kroll and Outland. <laughs> oh, man, those are great. Yeah. They always went together, though, didn't they? Yeah, in War Games. I mean, those were all HBO specials. But this was a really good movie, and uh, I'm a big, big fan of prison escape movies. Sure. And I was thinking today when I was looking over this stuff again that it's so weird that, like, these guys were hardened criminals, mm-hmm. and yet when you're researching this – all you can think about is, oh, man, I hope they got out of there. Right. And I hope they lived the fat life in Brazil. <laughs> well, that really speaks to, like, who they are, what they became because of this escape, which is, put most simply, they're folk heroes. I guess so, yeah. That's definitely a part of being a folk hero is that you can transcend the kind of, like, um, Crime. judgments <laughs> that society typically levies against people yeah. like criminals. Like, if you if you are so good at your craft or so good at something to do with criminality that um, you transcend being judged for your crimes, that's you've become a folk hero for sure. It's like D.B. Cooper. Yeah, and I think it helps that, uh, you know, these guys were armed robbers and thieves and I think uh, Frank Morris, and we'll get into all these who these dudes are, but he was mm-hmm. a drug trafficker, but they they weren't rapists and murderers. I, I don't think it no, can no, no. transcend that. <laughs> no, they um, they were definitely nonviolent criminals from everything that I've seen. Yeah, they used a toy gun in one of these robberies. Yeah, that's adorable. So, well, let's talk about these guys. Like you were saying, um, we're talking about a group of people who escaped from Alcatraz, and as far as anyone knows, they are the only ones who really may have escaped from Alcatraz. They vanished in 1962, um, last seen leaving their cells, and were never heard from again. And like you said, they were all hardened criminals, like lifelong career criminals. Frank Morris was 35 when he left Alcatraz, and he'd been a criminal since he was 13. Um, He was in and out of institutions. And like you said, he wasn't a violent criminal. He wasn't a rapist or a murderer or anything like that. He was, he was, he liked to, to, to sell the drugs. He had like a (laughs) a forehead tattooed or a star tattooed on his forehead for a while, which he very sensibly had removed later on. Um, Is that what that means? What? That he was a drug trafficker? Yeah. No, I think that means that he did a few too many drugs one night. Oh, he really did have a star. Yeah. I thought that was some, like, prison thing for, like, the teardrop uh, tattoo means you— doesn't that mean you killed somebody or something? That's what I've always heard, but I don't know. It could just be urban legend, but, yeah, that's what I've always heard. Okay, no, he I think really did was, have a star. Okay. Yeah, I think he got super wasted one night gotcha. got a star <laughs> tattooed on his forehead. There was a tattoo artist far too handy that night. Yeah. Uh, yeah, which I think the old saying, don't ever make friends with tattoo artists— yeah. Or at least drinking buddies. Sure. That's true. But he was also super smart, too. Yeah, and they point this out in the movie. Um, mm-hmm. And a lot of the movie, I mean, it's pretty close to the real story. Uh, they did a really good job, but they do make a big deal in the movie about how smart he was. Uh, I know IQ is sort of take it or leave it as far as uh, that being a real measurement of one's intelligence. But he supposedly had an IQ of 130, and the uh, the BOP which stands for the, was it Bureau of Prisons? Mm-hmm. I, I didn't know they had rankings, but they had rankings of uh, in, intellectual, intellectuality. Is that a word? <laughs> uh, yeah, I think so. It, it gets the point across, ergo it is. Yeah, and I'm curious what other rankings they have, but um, 
you know, <laughs> best looking, best abs. <laughs> <laughs> but he was in the top two percent, supposedly, in the American prison system as far as his intellectual capabilities. Yeah. So you you hit on a point there that I think we need to at least at least bring up, like the 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 movie did follow the the actual the truth of the matter fairly closely in some cases. In other cases, it veered wildly away. Like, there was a character based on one guy who was very much involved, but they didn't even use his name, and they made him seem less involved than he actually was. Um, There's a lot that the movie gets wrong. But the problem with covering this is that there's so many gaps and holes that are so easily and casually filled in Mm -hmm. that you can't help but wonder, like, wait, was this... Was this detail provided by somebody who saw the movie and took the movie as fact? Like, where are we exactly and just how pure the knowledge and understanding is of this escape? So you have to just kind of bear that in mind that it's a it's kind of a blur in the annals of crime as far as um, factuality goes. Yeah, but it's a good story. Great story. And most of this is pretty true, I think. Mm-hmm. So Frank Morris was four years into a 14-year stint. Uh, and this was for a bank robbery, and he was transferred to The Rock in 1960. The Rock. I didn't is, know we were using lingo <laughs> in this episode. It's, it's Alcatraz. It's a prison island mm-hmm. or an island prison. Yeah. And some might say the island itself is a prison, which we'll get to. And then his buddies, uh, you mentioned the Anglin brothers, uh, J.W., John William, and his younger brother Clarence uh, were 30 and 29 years mm-hmm. old. And they were from a very big family of migrant farm workers in South Georgia. They traveled all over the country, where, wherever the work was, basically, as a big family. And they got into stealing things from people. Yeah, and they were the ones who used the toy gun later on. They, they were, I think, visiting family in a small town called Columbia, Alabama, which is in the southeast of the state. And they found out that this bank had been around for a hundred years in this town and had never been robbed. So they assumed we're going to change that. <laughs> it'll be easy to knock over, and apparently it was pretty easy to knock over. And they had a, a toy gun that they used, and they still managed to get away with at least I think like ten grand or twenty grand, something a pretty substantial amount of money. And they were on the run for a little while, but but got caught, and the Alabamans were not very happy with it, and they threw the book at these brothers. They got 25-year sentences for robbing a bank with a toy gun. And that actually was way better than the sentence they initially faced, which was the potentially the death penalty. That's crazy. Yeah. Um, so so they were they were they were caught and busted and they had a third brother named Alfred too, who was also involved, but he was never sent to the to the rock, as you put it. I bet it was a, not a bet. It was factually a lot easier to rob banks back then. Yeah, it was way easier to be a criminal even just a few decades ago. Yeah, just in general, I think. Now it's like, don't even try. No, you get, I mean, if it's not the cops and their cameras, you got some dumb neighbor with their cameras, like me. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Oh, man. I hate to get off topic so quickly, but, and we should post this on the Facebook page or something, or maybe I'll put it on Instagram. What? I got attacked by a squirrel and it was captured by my front of the house camera. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Everyone wants to see that. This is great. I just I was taking out some recycling and I heard some rustling and I went around the corner and I was like, this squirrel was freaking out. And then he literally leapt. If you freeze frame it, he leapt three feet in the air. Wow. And, and hit my leg and ran up my leg a little bit. And then wow. And I react thusly. That's awesome. You know, it would be wonderful is to intercut close ups of your face. <laughs> 
when you got that Charlie horse on Internet Roundup. Oh, my God. In with the, the squirrel attack. <laughs> That'd be amazing. It's a good thing I don't care about myself and looking dumb. Why did you, why did that squirrel attack you? What did you do to it? I didn't do anything. It was freaking out. And then I turned and looked after I dropped the recycling off and he and another squirrel were going at it in our oak tree. So huh. I think he he was just, he was all riled up. He, he might have been on it out on you? Yeah. Did he have a star tattooed on his forehead? He did, right on his little, little <laughs> tiny furry forehead. <laughs> wow. Yes, please do post that, okay? <laughs> so, uh, all right, these guys are all in Alcatraz. And Alcatraz at the time was, um, like I said, it was sort of the rock itself was the prison. And that was the idea, was that even if you're, even if you manage to get out of the prison that they eventually built, which we'll talk mm-hmm. about, then you still can't get out of there because you got to swim it, over a mile to the nearest body of land, about 1.3 miles. That water's really cold. The currents are brutal. Yeah. The winds are really strong. San Francisco Bay is not, you know, for people that haven't been there, it's not just <laughs> like some lovely little chill body of water that you hang out in. No, it's not a very hospitable body of water. It's not. So um, the, the, the idea was that, yeah, like when you got sent to Alcatraz— you weren't getting off of that island. and You either paroled or died. Um, and that was actually the reason that the Anglins and Frank Morris were sent there was because they had all met at the federal pen in Atlanta. I guess the one down in Grant Park, right? Yeah, which that building is amazing. It's one of the most forbidding buildings in the world, I would say. It looks like an old-timey federal penitentiary. Al Capone was there, too, for a little while. Yeah, I actually drove by there not too long ago with my daughter for the first time, and I was like, check out that building. Look at that. It's like, that's a prison. She went, what's a prison? And I went, oh. (laughs) Well, I guess i got to explain that now. I'll tell you when you're 18. (laughs) If you make it. And don't go to prison first. <laughs> right. So they, they all met at the federal pen in Atlanta. And I can't remember if they actually made it out or if they were caught escaping, but they were known escape artists. Like the, the um, Frank Morris had escaped from places in Florida. Um, they, they didn't stay put when you, when you put them in prison. And so that's why they were all sent to Alcatraz. And just crazily, as they arrived between 1960 and 1961, they were all put pretty close together. And in fact, the Anglin brothers had adjoining cells, which is a very stupid thing to do, but that's what they did. In part, I believe, because there is a certain thread of arrogance that ran through the administration of um, Alcatraz, that it was just basically inescapable. Yeah, and I think you also sort of want happy prisoners. And... I've heard of requests like that being made possible before. Like, hey, if you put me near my brother, we're going to be a lot better behaved. Yeah, we're definitely not going to <laughs> to break out. Um, I don't think we mentioned either. Like Alcatraz was so formidable as a just a an island mm-hmm. that the very first time they used it was when the army uh, put soldiers there who who cheered on President Lincoln's death. And so they didn't even bother building a prison though. They just built some barracks. Threw him on the island and was like, well, you're in prison now because good luck getting out of here. Yeah, that's what I saw too. Um, and when the, the Bureau of Prisons took over, they they really fortified it even more. Like you said, there was a larger building that housed everything from like the mess hall to the cell blocks. So when you were in a cell, in a cell block, you were in, you were in a little tiny prison inside a larger prison, inside this island prison. Um, and the, the cell blocks themselves had like three-inch thick concrete walls, reinforced iron bars. The building itself was made of very thick concrete. It was, it was just meant to, to 
to basically tell you there's there's no getting out here. But um, what's what's crazy is um, Frank Morris and the Anglin brothers, they weren't the first people to ever try to bust out. Um, I believe they were part of a total of 36 people who tried to escape in the history of the, the prison. Um, everybody else, almost everybody else, was either um, killed, uh, captured, or their bodies were found, except— and I, I did not realize this. Um, Morris and the England brothers were not the first people to vanish without a trace from Alcatraz. Had you heard about um, Ted Cole and Ralph Rowe? I hadn't heard about them until this, but in the 30s, late 30s, uh, they did escape and they did vanish. And, you know, sort of like where this story is going, they were— I don't think anyone wants to admit that from the prison system that they could have really made it. Right. So they're like, nah, they they died, they drowned. But the thing is, the thing that really differentiates um, the Anglin brothers and Frank Morris from guys like Ted Cole and Ralph Rowe, they all shared in common that they escaped from Alcatraz and vanished without a trace. Uh, The thing that differentiates Morris and the Anglins is that they're folk heroes because, almost exclusively because of this plan they devised and executed and that the plan was so good and so complex and well done that it, it actually lends credence to the idea that they may have survived and escaped from Alcatraz genuinely. Yeah, and what they had in common is that they were all top ten in uh, best abs in the prison mm-hmm. system. Yep, and what everybody listening right now has in common is that you're about to hear an ad. <laughs> Okay, we're back, everybody. Um, and I think it's high time we we talk about the plan, the escape plan, don't you? Yeah. If you're going to escape from Alcatraz, um, it's not the kind of thing where you distract a guard and just run and jump over a fence. You got to start this thing, uh, this plan, many months in advance. Mm-hmm. And by all accounts, they, and by all accounts, meaning from the one account that we really have of this. <laughs> They started planning easily six months before the escape. They start Mm -hmm. developing this plan. They start collecting kind of anything they can get their hands on that they think they can use. Um, Everything from just loose nuts and bolts and screws to um, things that, I mean, they actually ended up using a lot of this stuff. But I got the impression that they were just kind of like any time they saw something that they could squirrel away and hide, Mm -hmm. they would do it because you never know what you could use it for. Yeah. And so, like, over the six-month period, they amassed something like 80 tools that they either stole, uh, had stolen for them, uh, rebuilt or repurposed out of other stuff, uh, or just made completely out of, like, their own labor. Like, they had a pretty extensive toolkit that they created. Um, One of the ways that they got a lot of the, the tools was from Alan West, who we haven't mentioned yet. But a lot of people don't realize there was a fourth conspirator in the Alcatraz escape um, who was a major integral part of it, but who actually didn't go along with the escape, as we'll see. Oh, man, that part in the movie is so tough. It is, um, especially with that poor guy. He he just looks— Yeah, that character He came out of the womb like, <laughs> I'm down on my luck. Can can you spare a dime, What's brother? What's his name? He's so good. He's been in I, so I many remember. things. 
But he was, um, I think he was the guy who played Kramer on yeah. Seinfeld. Yeah. In the... Uh... <laughs> In the pilot, in the NBC pilot? Yeah. Uh-huh. So, like, in the show, the guy playing Kramer <laughs> That's right. That's on right. the show, in the show, I think that was him. Yeah, he stole the M&Ms, I think. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, he was in Escape from Alcatraz, too. Yeah, he just, he's, he's perfect for that part. But this guy named Alan West, he, he was on the painting crew, and he put that to use big time. Uh, one of the first ways he did it was he was in the prison barbershop and managed to steal a pair of electric clippers while he was in there painting. And they were like, hey, this motor will come in handy. Well, let's repurpose it into a power drill. And they did. Yeah, that's pretty cool. He also, uh, I mean, just having a little motor is so handy. Mm-hmm. So he came across a uh, vacuum cleaner that wasn't working. And he said, hey, you mind if I repair this? Uh, I got to shake the tree first. But after that, you mind if I repair this? Isn't that what they call it? A vacuuming? No, and you got to pee on the, on the chain gang. Don't you call it shaking the tree? Oh, I guess. I think that's what it's called. Sure. But, I mean, what does that have to do with fixing a vacuum? Nothing. It's just prison humor. <laughs> oh, I got gotcha. you. <laughs> it's going to be a lot of prison jokes, so. All the inmates li- listening right now just busted out laughing. Like, he said, shake the tree. Well, it's a drinking game. How? Well, explain. If you're listening from prison, if someone says shake the tree, you take a drink. Of Pruno. Well, that's another drink. Yeah. That's the, but that's what you would drink when somebody said shake the tree. It so say shake meta. the tree one more time. <laughs> right, shake the tree, guys. I think everybody's got a pretty good buzz in prison right now. So he says, let me fix this vacuum cleaner. They say that's fine. He saw that the vacuum cleaner had a couple of different motors, and one of which he used to repair and actually make, you know, pass it off as a working vacuum cleaner. And then he just took that other one, and mm-hmm. that meant that they could make a drill that was even more powerful than the other one. Yeah. Um, so they had not one but two electric drills um, at their disposal, which kind of gives you a pretty good idea of just how dedicated and smart and crafty these guys were, right? Yes. Um, they also very famously ended up with 50, five zero different raincoats that were made from rubber, prison-issue raincoats that they got from other inmates. And this really reveals something that I think a lot of people don't necessarily realize. It seems like basically all the inmates in prison with Anglin, the Anglins and Morris were well aware of their plans. Not necessarily every detail or even any of the details, just that they were planning on breaking out. And so they managed to get their hands on like 50 different raincoats from other prisoners that they used to, to build um, a life raft and life vests with. Pretty great. Uh, I think the idea was is that these guys didn't like being on Alcatraz, so they kind of figured, hey, if these guys actually get out, they're going to close this place down. We're going to get out of here. Right. Not, you know, I don't, I don't know if I would have gone along with that rationale. <laughs> I would have thought it's going to be even worse for us here. Oh, yeah. But we'll, we'll hang on to what happened uh, till the end of the show. How about that? I think everybody would have kept their pruno from you had you raised that point, you know? So they've got all this stuff. they got paint. they got paper. They, they collect hair. And uh, from the from the barbershop, they, like, sweep up his hair and keep that. You might be thinking, why in the world would they need that? You'll, oh, just wait. You'll see. And then they had about three and a half hours each evening uh, after dinner slop and before lights out where they had to work um, and create, you know, a way out of their prison cell, mm-hmm. and then once they get out of their prison cell, like you said, they're still in this larger building, then a way out of there. But the first trick is getting out of their individual cells. Yeah. So from what I understand, that took up like the lion's share of the time 
between when they first hatched this plan and the time when they finally escaped. Um, they, they were like these little six by eight or nine or something, very small ventilation shafts cemented into the wall. Um, these The grates were cemented into the wall, but really it was just a little metal grate over a hole. So they figured it, they, they could start chipping away at that hole and enlarge the hole into something they could crawl through, and that's exactly what they did. Um, eventually, over time, Frank Morris and then both of the Anglin brothers managed to uh, create these holes, um, and they did so by by serving as lookout for one another while the other one chipped one night, and then they would trade off that kind of thing. And then here's a question that I have. I could not confirm one way or the other if it was a movie thing or if it was a real-life thing. Mm-hmm. But in the movie, they create um, these kind of cardboard false walls. Yeah that they're able to fill the hole with that it looks like the grate is still there and the wall is still intact. Um, so when they were out of their cells, they could put this false wall in behind them and um, nobody would be any the wiser when they just walked past and casually glanced in there. I don't know if they did that or not. I mean, it's a pretty great detail of the movie, mm-hmm. so I'm inclined to believe it. Let's go with it. What I didn't see, in, or I, don't, I haven't seen it in a long time, did they have those drills in the movie? Because I just remember a lot of digging with the um they kind of just like used a sharpened spoon as a a little mm-hmm. mini pick a sharpened spoon uh with a uh the warden's fingernail clippers that he steals in like one of the first scenes but there was no uh, drill in the movie was no. there not that i remember okay, no I didn't think so. but there definitely were two drills one of the one of the drills that one with the um vacuum motor they actually figured out it's just too loud. It's too powerful yeah. um, and too loud. That, so they, they abandoned that one. But I don't know what became of the, the um, hair clipper drill. I didn't hear anything about that one other than that they created it and used it. Well, they managed to dig through, though, where they could get their bodies out of the cell. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that just must have felt like, you know, we're, we're halfway there at this point, guys. Oh, yeah, I'll bet. So they, um, from there, it led to a utility corridor. It was about a meter wide. And there were no guards in here because this is sort of like the guts of the prison. Yeah. Like, why would you need to guard where there are no people? <laughs> wink, wink. Uh, and in that corridor, they could kind of move around freely. They uh, would climb up to the ceiling. Uh, this is like a three-story cell block, still within a larger building, though, of course, like we mentioned. And then they had a full-on workshop up there for a few weeks. They could store their tools. They could hide their stuff. They could build uh, we haven't really talked about the rafts, but where they would much, they would build their rafts there. Mm-hmm. And it just sort of, sort of serves as their staging area uh, where they would eventually leave from to go by this big, heavy iron grate to a ventilation shaft, which actually finally led to the rooftop. Right. But that big iron grate was a big iron problem yes. because the bars were reinforced. There was, they were, um, I think, welded or maybe screwed, I'm not sure, into this um, iron ring that covered this ventilation shaft. So it was a big problem. And then they figured out that the bolts holding this whole thing together were actually not nearly as strong as the bars that made up the grate and the ring that held the bars. So they started working away at at cutting these bolts one way or another. I think they um, created a wrench. They built themselves a wrench, and they managed to use that to some pretty good effect. But it it went from digging out of their cells to figuring out a way to to get through this grate. Um, That was kind of like stage two. Um, And then let's talk about the raft, because the raft is an extremely important part of this whole thing. And I think really one of the things, if not the thing, 
that that lends credence to the idea that they might have actually made it. Yeah, so they got these raincoats, and back then raincoats were just basically sheets of rubber. Yeah, they didn't breathe very well. No, they were very hot. Think like you get sweaty. Gorton's fisherman type of stuff. A sweaty Gorton's fisherman. Oh yeah, that guy was always sweaty. So <laughs> they ended up creating a six foot by fourteen foot life raft from these raincoats from. Uh, an article in Popular Mechanics, which shows up a couple of times, very useful mm-hmm. magazine yeah. if you were trying to escape prison. And it was an article about a hunter who had gotten lost and survived hunting geese that he attracted using rubber decoys that he'd made. So mm-hmm. they get this idea. They build these uh, inflatable pontoons made from these raincoat sleeves. So they were stuffed inside and made airtight by gluing uh, rubber cement, contact cement, over the seams and then pressing them against steel pipes, which vulcanized it. It just basically melted everything shut. And then you have these floatable pontoons that you could use and craft this larger raft. Yeah. So they had something that was inflatable. That, that Because those seams were vulcanized, it would hold the air. The air couldn't escape. Um, and they used uh, a concertina. Um, Oh, I can't remember. Handsome Pete. There's like a little a little guy who um, plays the accordion down on the docks that looks just like Krusty the Clown in one of the Simpsons episodes. Mm. And he's playing a concertina. It's like a squeeze box. It's like an accordion without the keys and the buttons. Yeah, but it acts as a bellows because it moves air, essentially. That's what they used it for. They modified it so that they could use it to inflate their raft very quickly with this concertina that I guess they stole from the prison music room, which is pretty great. So they're working on all this stuff, and the raft in particular, this this is like the, the linchpin of this whole plan is this raft and these life preservers. That work fell to Alan West. So while these dudes were chi- were were like chipping away at the the ventilation holes, um, Alan West was standing lookout for most of them, and he was creating this raft and these life vests. And so he wasn't able to chip away at his own ventilation hole nearly as fast. So while they were out, you know, working on the the um, grate, the vent cover grate, he still had no way out of his cell at that point. He hadn't made it all the way through. Yeah, and, you know, we should point out something that earlier we mentioned if if they happen to walk by and they don't notice a hole in the wall because they may or may not have made these false uh, grates and walls. Mm-hmm. If you're a listener and you don't know the story, you might have said, like, yeah, but wouldn't they have noticed there was no one in the cell? Good question. What they did was they made paper mache recreations of themselves. They made these busts. Uh, they use that prison hair, which is so gross. It is so grody. And use that rubber cement again to glue this hair on. And if, if you see the real things, it's not Madame Tussauds or anything. It's not like, <laughs> boy, look at that likeness. Photorealistic. But it's in the dark. And you're sort of, I think, as a human trained to, to see what you're looking for. So if you're a guard that's just walking by, you see a head turn the other way with, with prison hair on it. Uh-huh. and some pillows uh, under a blanket, and you you don't think it looks fake. It just looks like uh, – it wasn't like Ferris Bueller style with um, like a fake snore on the hi-fi system or anything. <laughs> right. But you just kind of walk past it. It that. worked well enough. Like they did this for weeks and weeks and weeks with these paper mache busts, and it worked. They never got noticed. No, they didn't because, I mean, remember, like the, the they were working between the end of dinner and lights out, so they just seemed to have made it look like they went to bed early um, and put the paper mache busts in there. It's like, those guys sure are sleepy. Yeah, they're Too much Bruno for you, Frank. 
Got a lot, I got a lot of questions about this, but I'm not going to investigate any further. <laughs> exactly. So do you want to talk about the escape and then go to ad break? Yeah, I think that's the way to do it. Okay. So finally, they get to this point where the grate is, the bars are removed from this grate enough that they can slip through. And they realize that they have, um, they have successfully uh, penetrated hmm. the, to the exterior of the building. That's right. Okay? They're on the roof. Uh, well, they know they can get on the roof now. They know that it is go night. I, be, um, I bet you they got up there at least once to be like, all right. I don't know. I haven't heard anything like that. And there's a lot of questions about why this particular night. Was this the very first night that they were able to get out? And they're like, let's go, um, which seems likely to me. Or were they waiting for a particular night? Or like you said, have they tested it before? Did they do any dry runs? We don't really know that. Um, but what we, we do know is that on Monday, June 11th, 1962, um, J.W. Anglin, Clarence Anglin, and Frank Morris all left their cells. And the first thing Frank Morris did was go to help Alan West finish um, puncturing the hole through his cell wall. Poor he Alan. still had not done this yet. He's like, come on, we got to go. But apparently part of the, the plan was to help him um, punch the hole out the rest of the way, and then he would escape with them. Um, Frank Morris apparently tried in vain and uh, went off to get Clarence Anglin to, to come try. And they traded off. And then Clarence tried. He couldn't do it either. So I guess he had the very um, uh, uncomfortable, <laughs> yeah, conversation. I'll be right back. I got to go. I got to go shake the tree <laughs> right. or something like that. I'll be right back. You stay here. Yeah. And that was the last anybody ever saw of uh, Frank Morris, Clarence Anglin, or J.W. Anglin from, from that moment until today. Yeah. So they, they get to that corridor. They climb up to um, the roof of the cell block and then through that ventilation shaft. That grate is no longer a problem, and they push and Alan, away. Alan West, they can just barely hear him saying, like, you guys are coming back, right? <laughs> Any minute now, you said. <laughs> um, so they, there's this rain cover on top. They push that thing off, and this this all makes some noise. And, and in the movie, they uh, they kind of accurately display that, too, as some clanking and clanging around. Yeah. And uh, I don't think in the movie they did this, but in real life, supposedly, there was so much noise that they did, like, a little 45-minute um, – Kind of a, a search of the area. Right. Didn't see Not anything going search. on. No, they didn't go up on the <laughs> roof, that's for sure. No. And uh, they basically didn't find anything. So the guys are out. They shimmy about 50 feet to the ground uh, via drain pipe, which is how you always do it. Go to that perimeter fence. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure the perimeter fence was fine, but I think the idea was that they're never getting out anyway. Right. So I don't think it had like 15 feet of razor wire or anything like that. I think it did have double barbed wire, at least, yeah, for but sure. that's nothing for us. A... It's not like concertina wire or anything. No, nothing like that. Uh, around 1 in the morning, Alan West, poor Alan West, he finally gets that cell grate broken open. Yeah. I, I, I'm sure he just thinks, all right, I'm going to catch up to these guys, and it's going to be all good, right. and I'm getting out of here. Follow that same route. It's been a couple of hours at this point, though. He saw that these were genuinely good dudes, it seemed like, because they did leave him a paddle. I don't think we mentioned they made paddles out of chair legs and the, right. the screws and nuts and bolts. Yeah. And a pontoon uh, that was all inflated for him. And he and got a, a little snack, a little Rice Krispie Treat. <laughs> a little Rice Krispie Treat. It's a little Pruno, a little shot of Pruno for his, <laughs> for his courage. Right. And then he looks over, terrible timing, and there's a guard in a new position that basically could see anything that he tries to do. 
Yeah. From that he, point forward. He's visually pinned down on the roof. He can't do anything. So this is around 1 a.m. or something, and he figures, okay, the guard will eventually move. Well, Alan West says the guard never moved for until dawn, like, basically. doesn't this guy pee? Right. Doesn't he ever shake the tree? <laughs> right. Um, and he didn't. He did not shake the tree. He stayed put. And so eventually Alan West was forced to climb back down the ventilation shaft, mm. back down from the roof of the cell block, Saddest three stories ever. back to his cell that he had just a few hours earlier, finally, after months, punched a hole through. And he went and laid down and just waited for the, the heat to come down on him. And indeed it did because at the 7 a.m. bed check, Three dummy heads were discovered where three inmates, real heads should have been, uh, and the prison just went berserk. You know that feeling you get when you take a wrong turn and go like three or four miles in the wrong direction and have to go all the way back the other way? Yeah. Imagine being Alan West and having to do that. That times infinity? That times infinity. Yeah. You want to take another break? I think so, man. All right. We'll get to the, well, we won't get to the bottom of this, but we'll speculate all over the place right after this. Okay, so... There are some things that we know about this from watching the movie, <laughs> but the movie writers based the movie on a book, and the book author, I believe, based his stuff on an interview or interviews with Alan West that Alan West had with the Bureau of Prisons and the FBI, because basically everything we know about the escape from Alcatraz came from the mouth of Alan West. Yeah, so he made a deal. He said, listen, I'll tell you all about it. But you can't throw me in here for longer because I tried to escape prison. You got to give me immunity for that attempted escape. Mm-hmm. And let's be honest, guys, it really wasn't much of an attempt. Can you give me a break here? <laughs> right. Uh, I had to make the sad walk of shame back to yeah. the cell. I have a feeling that that definitely factored into their decision to give him immunity. Like, man, probably you, so. You really, uh, you really got a hard luck case. So he makes a deal and says, "I'll tell you everything." But again, this is just his account of it. Um, one thing that kind of jumped out is maybe it's not the most accurate account was that he was like, yeah, I was the mastermind. I thought up the whole thing from the start. Yeah. And I don't know if that's quite true because it seems like Clint Eastwood did. Yeah. Certainly the, the, in the movie, the movie's basically, it should be called Colin, the Frank Morris story. (laughs) Yeah. He's the main character. Everybody else is a side character. It was Clint Eastwood. Um, It really kind of downplayed a lot of the contributions by the Anglin brothers, certainly by Alan West, doesn't even use Alan West's name. Um, So I don't know how much of an influence is from that movie or if that movie was just based on the general idea that Frank Morris was um, the mastermind and the leader, that he was a very intelligent person and kind of a born leader from what I know. So it's just not clear whether Alan West actually came up with this plan or not. Was he the one who sewed the the raft all this time and he got left behind? Or maybe he had really weak arms and this was just what he told the the, the Bureau of Prisons investigators. It was the reason why he never 
was able to chip out of the his cell. Who knows? But just so just bear in mind from this point forward, we're just going to go on with the with this as gospel. But all of this is coming from Alan West's mouth. He was the one that was left behind. I I feel like in the movie he got to the point where he could not jump up by himself and reach the grate. Is that right? Uh, yeah. So in the movie, they help each other up, right? And then, um, he would he would have had to have done it himself, and he couldn't jump. He just kept jumping and jumping and couldn't make it. Yes, but from what I know, he made it up to the roof and was pinned down on the roof by that that guard in the watchtower. Yeah, but that I don't wasn't think it was movie, a guard right? inside. No, 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 no. You're right. In the movie, it was like that. So uh, the plan was, and this is again from West's account said, was to sail this raft, or I guess paddle this raft across the bay to mm-hmm. Angel Island, about a mile away, a little over. Yeah. And he said from there, they were going to rest for a little bit, get their bearings, stash everything, and then swim to the mainland uh, across what's called the Raccoon Straits to Mar- uh, Marin County. And then once they got there, they would start doing crime again immediately. <laughs> they would rob a store for uh-huh. clothes and money and steal a car and get the heck out of there as quickly as possible before the word gets out ostensibly. Yeah. Which is a pretty great plan, actually. Except um, for the crime part. Like, I would have, I don't know. I guess the idea is to just get as far away as possible, but I don't know if I would have. Yeah, but you need a car. It's not like somebody's going to just give you one. I know, you can take the BART. <laughs> <laughs> sure. You could take the BART, I guess. I don't but think the BART the, was around back then. I think it was a pretty good, maybe they were just like one last heist to get away from here. Maybe that's what it was. Maybe, because um, they just want, I mean, I get they want the urge to get as far away from there as possible. Right. Yeah. But. Also, what if all of a sudden cops are on you from stealing a car immediately? I guess no, it's, it's a risk. A, it's all a risk. It is a big risk. And a lot of people say that um, they were actually helped on the other side. There was a guy named, um, oh, man, I can't remember his last name, but his his first name or his nickname was Bumpy. He was a, McGillicuddy. Um, a Harlem uh, crime lord, uh-huh. drug lord, um, who was just a total B.A., um, and they think that he may have had something to do with helping them escape uh, with somebody who would have shown up and, and picked them up and driven them off. Other people say that one of the Anglin's girlfriends was there, but the FBI supposedly investigated and said Frank Morris didn't have anybody. He was an orphan. He didn't have anybody on the outside who could have helped. The Anglin's had family that definitely would have helped if they could, but they um, didn't have the means to actually to help them they out were, in San Francisco. Yeah, they were bumpkins. So, yeah, but they were a tight family, and they were the kind of family where I think if one of them had called and been like, I'm breaking out, I need you to pick me up, they would have done it. That They're like that, that, that kind of tight family bond. Not like my family would be like, oh, well, I'll call you right back. And then, hello, FBI, right. how much of a reward do you uh-huh. have for giving up a prison escapee? Yes, a, a federal prison. Oh, that much, huh? Great. Do you have a pen? Can you do any better? <laughs> right. So Yeah, that's exactly what my family would follow up with. Uh they did find some evidence, so um, they did uh, a search for about a week and a half, um, along with the FBI, like you were saying, and the Bureau of Prisons and the Alcatraz people. They were all super mad, of course, mm-hmm. especially in the movie version. And they searched Angel Island. Uh, they searched all the other islands in the bay, and they did find uh, one of those life preservers that had teeth marks uh, on the inflation valve. They found a wallet wrapped in plastic that they figured was J.W. Anglin's. Yeah. They found one of those oars. And they found it looked like most of one of the rafts or most of the raft. It did. But no bodies, no stolen cars, no burglaries. Um, no one had reported anything in the area unusual uh, to, to according to their plan, which was to, you know, steal clothes and money in a car. 
Yeah, and so the Bureau of Prisons, like, right out of the gate was like, they drowned, they're, they were washed out to sea, that's it. We'll never hear from them again, but they're dead. They didn't actually escape. Um, and that this was in 1962. It wasn't until 1979 that the FBI closed the book and said, yeah, that's probably what happened. We, we presume that they were dead and their bodies lost at sea. Um, but when they were building this case, uh, they cited the, the um, story of a guy named Seymour Webb who had jumped from the Golden Gate Bridge at virtually the same time the Englands and Morris would have been in San Francisco Bay, and his body was never found. Uh, despite there being witnesses who watched him jump. It's very flimsy. Yeah. Um, yes, but at the same time, it does kind of demonstrate, like, look, man, yeah, this, could happen, this guy was never, yeah, he was never found. He jumped at the same time the Anglins and Morris were in the water, so maybe their bodies were never found. There was a sighting of a body about five weeks later in July of 1962 um, by a group of Norwegian sailors who saw something kind of floating off, and they were like, is that a body? Yeah, and they went and got binoculars, and they said that's a body. It was a body. It was um, floating upside down, so all they could see was the butt, basically, mm-hmm. kind of bobbing in the water. And the butt looked through their binoculars, at least, to have on jeans, have on denim. And they, you know, that was part of the prison outfit was they were wearing denim. And the F- this this is the part that kind of gets a little flimsy to me is the FBI sure. said that there were no missing persons in the area in that time frame that were wearing jeans. <laughs> <laughs> right. Are you ready for this? So Are you sitting down. Who knows? And it was reported many weeks later. So it it you know it was all it, it was kind of hearsay, I guess, at that point. It was. And then by the time they actually reported the sighting, it was October. So they're like, well, that's kind of useless. But they they do point to that and say, okay. This, combined with uh, Seymour Webb, we think that their bodies were swept out to sea. Not everybody agrees with that, um, including the Anglin family, who very much maintain that their brothers uh, survived this escape from Alcatraz and actually um, had a photograph that I don't know where they got it, but they, they have a photograph that was supposedly taken of their brothers in Brazil in 1975 looks, that they shared looked with like it could have been them. It does. It certainly does. And there's actually a company, I can't remember the name of the company, but they do like um, artificial intelligence facial recognition. So they're just really leading the way to a dystopia. But they were like, hey, everybody, we want to introduce you to our software. So we're going to analyze this picture. And um, their AI said, yep, definitely the Anglins. How (laughs) cool is that? Yeah. I mean, I certainly looked at it and it it could be. It, It didn't look so unlike them that it was like, no way. Right. Um, and again, I found myself being like, yeah, man, I hope these guys made it to Brazil. And they're, sure. and they're robbing banks there to this day. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> right. I have them raising cattle in Brazil. That's mm-hmm. my that's mm-hmm. my idea. Uh, in 2013, there was a letter sent to the San Francisco Police Department, mm-hmm. uh, supposedly from J.W. Anglin, saying, hey, we made it, guys, but just barely. Uh, Morris died in 2008. We kept in touch. Great guy. Um Clarence died in 2011, and I'm still alive, but I got cancer. I need help, and I'm going to come forward if you, if you promise and pinky swear and tell the public that you're not going to send me to jail for more than one year, and you're going to heal my cancer. Yeah, and apparently they analyzed the letter and were like, this is inconclusive. But the FBI was like, we closed this case in 1979. We're not about to open it up. But here's the thing. The the idea that they survived is at least possible enough that for this whole time, the U.S. Marshal's Office, who took over the case from the FBI in 1979, um, 
have have kept it open. Like these guys are wanted outlaws still to this day, even though they would be 89, 90, and 95, I think by now. They are considered wanted fugitives and the case is open. Even though I believe the Marshal Service typically believes that they're dead, they haven't closed the case. Yeah, here's my deal. If you do something like this and you don't leave some rock-solid deathbed evidence, then right. you're just selfish. <laughs> you really are. You owe it to the world to to have this be a lead story and be like Frank Morris died and he, he you know here's the evidence here's that little flower from the right. movie <laughs> yeah exactly you te- teach your smartest head of cattle to stamp out a message in Morse code <laughs> that's what I want you spending your dying days doing teaching that cow the marshals say that they don't think they survived and and went on to lead lives of solitude because they're like, these guys are career criminals. Mm -hmm. They would have done something again. They would have gotten caught again. It's a good point. Uh, Arguments four is that, and they don't know if they planned this that way or not, but when they went, on the day they went, and during the hours they went, they actually had a few good hours of pretty calm bay currents. Um, You know, it could be so bad that they're going to pull you out to sea or so bad that they take you in the wrong direction completely away from land. Uh And they said that, you know, whether it was just Providence or whether they planned it this way, they had a a cloudy night, so there wasn't much uh, light from the moon, and they had a really calm bay. So in theory, they they might could have done this. They could have, but the winds were really terrible that night too. Um, I think there were gusts up to like 21 miles an hour, sustained winds of like 10 miles an hour. In which direction though? That's tough to row. Um, I, who knows? If if it was lucky, then yeah. If it was blowing them toward Angel Island, then that was in their favor. If it was blowing in any other direction, that would make it very, maybe very bloom tough. to Brazil. And then maybe maybe so. They're like, well, that was fortunate. I didn't even have to steal a car. Um, the uh, the other problem is the water. The water temperature is like fifty degrees Fahrenheit, which is very very cold, and you get very um, numb, and eventually. Uh, sent into shock and then exhaustion pretty quickly after being in this water for 30 minutes or less. But people swim in that thing. They do. And it's happened before. They have triathlons in the in that water, and people do it. So it's not to say that these guys could not have done it. It wasn't right. so frigid that science would say, oh, no, you would die inside five minutes in this water. It, exactly. I mean, especially if they were operating on the d- adrenaline that they surely would have had from the escape. Shimmying 50 feet down a drain pipe alone will pump you full of some pretty decent adrenaline. So who knows what they were capable of at the time? I have a theory. Let's hear it. Is that the Anglins uh, killed Frank Morris out there on that raft, and that was the body they saw floating, and that's why they made it to Brazil, and we never heard from Frank Morris again. I don't like your theory. You don't think I don't like you don't that like one at all. Turning on them at the last minute? No, <laughs> no. My theory is that that body was actually Seymour Webb. That he was wearing denim jeans under pants that got taken off of his <laughs> other pants, and that he wasn't actually dead, but he met a mermaid um, or merman. Uh, who he fell in love with and spent the rest of his life under the sea with. Well, that's lovely. I like that theory. But the cherry on top here is that those prisoners who wanted to help them escape because they thought the prison would close uh, were right. The prison was shut down the following March, and uh, the Bureau of Prisons said, you know what, we were going to shut this thing down anyway because Alcatraz is just too much to keep up. This yeah. this big concrete block on a rocky island is too expensive to keep up (laughs) with very few guards. Uh, so who knows? But in the movie, they definitely sort of portray it as 
is that's the reason why. Yeah, and the warden never had a happy day again. That's right. Pretty satisfying film. Pretty satisfying film. And Chuck, I guess we said all this to say this. We have a book coming out that we would love for you to pre-order. Yeah, that's right. Stuff you should know. (laughs) (laughs) Is that jarring? An incomplete compendium of mostly interesting thing. And guys, one of our lifelong dreams is to be on the New York Times bestseller list. Yeah, they give you a t-shirt. We really want to get on that list. And if that list came out today, we wouldn't be on it. (laughs) So we would love for you to step up and help our dreams come true. Sure. How's that for a plea? I think that's a great plea. A plea and a plug all together. It's a pleag. What does this thing cost? 20 bucks? I think so. And it's worth every penny, I can tell you, because we wrote it. That's right. So um, that's it. If you want to go order our book, you can pre-order it anywhere you get books. Thank you in advance. And uh, I think that's it for Escape from Alcatraz, too, right? That's it. Uh, If you want to know more about Escaping from Alcatraz, there are some really great articles and books and all sorts of stuff out there on the internet for you to dig into. So get digging. As I said, get digging. It's time for listener mail. I'm going to call this Delaware response. We kind of poked fun at Delaware a little bit. (laughs) A we now? I guess it was me. But uh, Delawareans. Delawareans? 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 Delawareanites. They are lovely people, as it seems, because we've gotten quite a few emails, and they all have good humor about their their lovely little state. Uh, hey, guys, our Delaware family had to laugh at your pirate radio podcast. Delawareans, oh, yeah, it's right there, would be proud to be known as the Luxembourg of the United States. Most people drive through our state on I-95 in less than 30 minutes. But if you do stop by, our state is rich in history and agriculture, and we have a few nice beaches. What you should know is the Ark on the top of our state, or I guess it's an arch, is made by a 12-mile radius from Newcastle, uh, an historic town. What many people do not know is the bottom of the arc formed a wedge betwixt Pennsylvania, Maryland, and Delaware. The ownership of that land was in dispute between Delaware and Pennsylvania for decades, only to be resolved in 1921. Rumor has it that the disputed land was a haven for unsavory types who capitalized on the uncertain jurisdiction. Thanks for the show. It informs and entertains my family. And we wish you well from Delaware, the first state to ratify the Constitution. Oh. That is from Doug Wazgat and family. Nice, Doug. Thank you. I would have led with the first state to ratify the Constitution thing. I, I bet they tout that a lot. That's a, sure. that's a good thing to tout. <laughs> yep. Uh, well, if you want to be like Doug and defend your state, uh, whether it's Delaware or not, we want to hear from you, and you can send it in an email to stuffpodcast at iheartradio.com. Stuff You Should Know is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.